Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sierra Week Conversation brought to you by IHS Market. My name is Julian Jansen, and I'm a senior manager in the IHS Market Clean Energy Technology and Renewables Division, where I lead our global energy storage research. Today, we will be talking about distributed energy resources, or DERs, which are proliferating in distribution grids around the world as customers seek greater control over the cost environmental footprint of their electricity use. I'm delighted to have two really great panelists today, um, and I'm sure they will both be able to provide great perspective on both the technologies and business models that are driving this market. So first I have with me is Surya Panditi, who's the CEO and president of NLX North America. And NLX is providing integrated sustainable energy solutions and electric vehicle charging technologies. Surya, welcome to Zero Week Conversations. Well, thank you for inviting me. And secondly, I've got Leo Handelsmann. Leo is, the found, is one of the founders of Solar Edge, a pioneer in distributed solar. And I believe recently, Leo, you've also transitioned into the world of venture capital. Welcome to Zero Week Conversations. Thank you very much, Julian. Great. So let me just briefly set the scene. Because according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, the U.S. already has more than 12 million distributed generation units. And it's about one-sixth of the capacity of the nation's existing centralized power plants. So distributed energy resources, which includes anything from solar PV, battery energy storage, electric vehicles, responsive loads, but also more traditional um, generation resources, resources such as combined heat and power and fuel cells are really rapidly seeing uptake. And it's really challenging the way our energy system works and the way that customers use and generate um, electricity. On top of that, we're seeing, seeing extreme weather events, natural disasters, and cyber intrusions that have brought the value of resiliency to the forefront of both customers, but also utilities minds. And as we're seeing that widespread adoption, utilities are facing new challenges and opportunities that have the potential to transform the way the distribution grid is managed. So I'm really excited to be discussing with both of you really what this means and how this space is changing. So maybe to kick off, Leo, SolarEdge was one of the pioneers in distributed solar, um, but has recently acquired companies in the UPS, powertrain, and battery manufacturing space so can you tell us a little bit more, what do distributed energy resources mean to you and what are your key priorities in the space today? Sure. So uh, um, you're very right. The distributed energy resources started with uh, the local generation, mostly of renewables like wind and solar, but it is expanding uh, literally as a... Every year we see new models of consuming and generating energy locally. Uh, so naturally the addition of storage is one of the biggest uh, changes as the ability to store energy became uh, economic with the decline of uh, lithium-ion batteries, the decline in, in the cost of uh, lithium-ion batteries, the integration of solar plus storage and, uh, and uh, other energy sources with storage allows for a more sophisticated mode of distributed energy resources. So naturally we're expanding there, both in technology and software to manage such sites and also with the ability to provide the, the storage capability itself. 
but it moves on to the next level where the more EVs we have on our network, EVs are becoming part of our network. They will be a major load. They will also be a major part of the solution also because EVs are basically storage units that can move around with you. You will be able basically to move around with your energy uh, and EVs at some point will be able to participate uh, in the overall distributed energy gain by becoming moving batteries that can discharge and and, uh, and consume energy uh, basically at will. So that world of evolution where data centers are a major load but also have a lot of storage due to UPS capabilities and other capabilities solar plus storage, EV as a storage, as a, as a transportable storage resource. It's all one, one new big exciting network. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you're looking at it, especially from a technology perspective. So maybe um, Sui, you can provide us with some perspective of what distributed energy resources mean to you, because analysis transitioned from a traditional Italian utility to really becoming a leader in providing integrated energy solutions. So how do you look at this space? Uh, thanks, Julian. I think you um, really framed that well. Um, NL is a large, uh, primarily um, Italian, Spanish, and somewhat um, in uh, South America utility, um, over 80 billion euros in revenue. So very large, and yet at the same time, very forward thinking in terms of um, sustainability, signing on to the UN um, uh, sustainability targets. And now we're the largest uh, non-state-owned uh, renewables um, company. I think we have 46 gigawatts of renewable across the globe. So um, uh, I think that uh, really shows that um, you know we're signing up to um, promoting and not only promoting but doing uh, a, a fair bit to lead the uh, sustainability uh, goals. So with that in mind, um, in the in North America, we have of course we have a renewables business, but uh, NLX itself, we're looking at a few different things. Um, we uh, do have a traditional demand response business, which is the curtailment of uh, energy consumption during uh, peak times. Uh, at the same time, we've also got a um, battery storage business, and um, uh, we also have EV charging. So we own the juice box product, for example, that's now part of NLX. But bringing all this together to your question, I think what we see is the opportunity both to address the concerns around resiliency, around the ability for the local availability of uh, energy and capacity, and uh, allow utilities not to have to build out and invest in very significant expensive assets. And so we can talk more about some of the examples. At the same time, we have the ability to make sure that there's a financially viable solution in many markets, not in all states or not in all markets, I'll, I'll admit that. But that's the combination of the, of the capability and the financials that we believe we do uniquely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a really kind of good scene setter from both your perspective, because I think what we're seeing is this coming together of different assets and different resources and customers more and more looking at solutions rather than just a specific product or a specific technology. Um, I think before we get into that a little bit more, I do want to at a high level understand what the impact of COVID-19 has been on, on this market and the space, because unfortunately, I think at this time, we cannot have any of these conversations without mentioning COVID-19. So maybe straight back to you, Soya. I mean, 
Are you seeing COVID-19 and the pandemic impacting customer adoption and utility adoption of distributed energy resources? Uh, so three things. Number one is um, clearly there were some uh, issues with accessing sites, uh, especially early on as people were trying to figure out what is the right protocol. Uh, most of that now is behind us, but uh, you know we did see access issues. Um, second thing is the loads themselves patterns have changed, you know, where New York City, for example, went from being a very highly um, utilized uh, system to uh, seeing loads drop there, but then they moved outside as well. So we've we've seen that kind of pattern change. And um, I think Lior was talking about EVs. We've certainly seen, um, you know, people not driving as much and not buying new um, EVs. I think that's also picking up. And then the third thing is, um, interestingly, the uh, as things started to open up, we're seeing the uh, desire of many companies to more aggressively make sure that their production is picking up and that they're able to still not only gear up for 2021, but also make up if they can some of the lost time in 2020. So I think those are the dynamics. And uh, of course, we all are looking to see what the new normal will be. But um, as we start to open up, I, I do think that uh, we're seeing these these things um, start to start to uh, become a reality in terms of um, our third third and fourth quarters. Absolutely. And maybe, maybe similar to you, Leo, I mean, are you seeing a significant change both for residential and commercial customers in terms of the uptake of distributed energy resources during this time? So, so first of all, uh, um, COVID definitely uh, showed many companies and many uh, people the need for resilience. It showed the need for resilience on a personal level, right? So people seemed like they wanted to stock up on uh, on uh, basic goods. They also wanted to 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 see how energy uh, independent. They are. So we definitely see an uptick in, in, in demand for home backup solutions, energy store, home energy storage solutions. We see the same trend also in commercial sites where people want to be more self-sufficient and less dependent on, on, on the grid. It also showed countries and, and, and officials the need for more resilience and flexibility. Um, uh, in the grid, exactly um, as already mentioned, the entire consumption curve changed, right? So we uh, we all keep keep talking about the duck curve, the duck curve, but but the entire consumption curve changed because people are now at home, less offices uh, uh, are being utilized, less driving of uh, uh, EVs in uh, whenever you're trying to to manage the grid, you many grid operators uh, saw the need for higher flexibility and higher flexibility uh, can be better achieved with uh, distributed uh, generation and distributed storage. So there is a change, there is an increase in demand. With that comes the fact that with lockdowns, with uh, uh, some companies uh, being more focused on cash and less focused on uh, investing now in, uh, in uh, the future, there is also some slowdown, especially in the in the availability of cash for capex uh, investment. So there's a short-term effect and a longer-term effect. I'm sure that in the long term, people see the need. The short term might be challenging in some regions or some markets. 
Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you put, uh, raised a really important point there with resilience, because I think even before COVID-19, you know, if we look back at last year, we, we had um, wildfires in California, which led to public safety shutoffs, especially in Northern California, with bushfires in Australia. We're seeing more and more natural disasters, um, hurricanes, et cetera, which is really, really raising the, the issue of resilience both to the utility and the customer and brings that to the forefront. So maybe, Surya, beyond COVID-19, to what extent do you see resiliency concerns playing a crucial role in the uptake of DERs? And um, yeah, how, how do customers react to that? Yeah, I think um, that what we find is resiliency is definitely a motivator especially in the areas that you mentioned, some of the places that have been hit by wildfires or natural disasters. Um, And at the same time, I want to again come back to the question of financials. What we find is that it's difficult to put a value on resiliency. And in some cases, there is that motivation because of the criticality of that particular production requirement or whatever the company's business might be. And at the same time, we see that the CFO wants to make sure that he or she sees the economics pencil as well. And so um, that's the combination that, again, I think becomes an important factor and um, the ability to make sure that as they look at different solutions and your earlier point, Julian, it is a solution. It's not just a standalone unit. It's a system and it's a solution. As they start to look at that, they do factor in that the system can participate in the right, the right kind of either incentives or revenue streams that would, would make it more palatable from an investment perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Leo, do you have any thoughts on, on how you should value res- resiliency? I mean, you've, you've brought in um, lots of distributed solar across the world. You've, you've acquired a battery storage company. So how, how do customers value resiliency and how can you as a supplier play a role in, in getting them to understand the value that resiliency brings? So obviously it is, it is easier to value resiliency in a commercial system than in a residential system because everything is uh, more calculated and measurable in a, in a commercial business. And any business that has downtime a calculated cost can easily calculate resiliency. So same like data centers invest a lot of money in UPS systems and generators, they can quite easily put a price on better resiliency that is based on, on faster storage uh, 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 solutions. Uh, the more you move away from a very calculated business to the, let's, to the, to, to the home environment, and it is harder to put a, a price on resiliency, and it is more a, a more emotion-based decision. One of the amazing things that we saw in the in the more distributed side of residential and small business is that a, a people are willing to invest in resiliency and grid independence, even if it costs them money, even if there is no financial return, right? Uh, so yes, there is more emotion involved the more you move away from a well-calculated business to a more a home environment. But I must say that there is a lot of openness and a lot of demand for such products. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've touched upon really well there on the different drivers that are at least behind the customer decision-making. Of course, 
resilience is one of them, but also um, very clearly financial considerations, especially in the commercial industrial space, um, independence and being more sustainable, the other two core factors within the uptake. But I think what's quite unique with DERs is that they don't just provide value to the customer, but they also, in many cases, can provide value to the utility or the grid. And Leo, you already mentioned the terminology of flexibility, which is obviously coming more and more important as we transition our energy system towards more renewables. So I think, you know, within this space, it's quite unique because we have to look at both the customer and the utility value. So, so yeah, I know, especially in your, your operations um, across the U.S., um, you have to work with lots of different utility companies. So what role do you think utilities should play in guiding distributed energy adoption? Yeah, I think that it's important for the right um, um, financial structures as well as regulations. So the number one thing is that, um, you know, we are able to make sure that the project is financially viable. And I'll give an example. So we did a project in uh, New York City with um, for the ConEd uh, non-wire solution. And what we did was we installed a 4.8 megawatt battery on a retail site with the, the related companies. And this is customer sited, but it's front of the meter. So it's not uh, sitting behind the meter. And so what we're able to do is provide the right level of, provide a sense, a level of um, uh, utility benefit and value by being a distributed energy resource that they could call on as they need without having to invest as a title, as the name says, non-wire solution, without having to invest in the, in the distribution uh, uh, assets and, and potentially generation assets, which could be not only expensive, but also not clean. And the combination of the right incentives, including our ability to monetize every time we discharge or participate in providing grid services, not just energy, but also ancillary services. I think that's the important thing is that our ability to monetize all of those make that project more financially viable. And at the same time, regulations are important because in every jurisdiction, there's both what you have to check as well as things like interconnect. And those become really important for us to be able to plan for. I mean, I have to go to the company's investment committee and make certain commitments around timeframes and investment. And so to the extent that we can come through on those, it becomes incredibly important for us to be able to do more projects. And that's just one example. You know, we're, we're doing projects in multiple uh, areas. And what we find is that this combination of financial and regulatory are, are critically important. Mm, absolutely. And um, I think there you, you always come from at this from a, from being a solution provider and in many cases working with the utilities um, serving utility contracts. Leo Soledge, you're more of a technology led firm. And to what extent can you cooperate um, or collaborate with utilities as a technology firm? What, what's the role for you within this? So, so, so obviously, since we have so many assets, you don't own them, but we have the technological, uh, 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 we are the, the technological backbone of so many distributed energy systems. We develop this tool, uh, which is basically a cloud uh, solution, which allows uh, the aggregation of multiple systems into a virtual power plant. And that uh, product is actually something that is uh, used by uh, many grid operators and uh, Utilities, it can bring value if you're an, uh, if you're an energy distributor, if it, it can re, uh, bring value if you're a network uh, operator or a DNO or a TNO. 
Um, and it can bring value if you're a fleet operator that wants to, to, to offer your entire fleet as a flexibility resource to some other uh, market player. Uh, and it can control storage, solar, EV, even home, home uh, automation uh, devices. And with that tool, we have a large number of uh, utilities and network operators around the world that is leveraging that tool in order to create various virtual power plant solutions, either for flexible, for frequency uh, st- st- stabilization solutions or for energy dispatching, virtual pickers, lots of uh, other needed solutions on the network. It's very exciting. A lot of the projects are early stage or pilot stage, but to see how this we started working on this because we felt that we have to bring um, solutions to the market in order to allow the continuous growth of uh, solar and renewable energy. Without this, solar would be would be capped at some level because at a higher level, distributed energy uh, would just cause grid instability. So for us, it was even before it was a product to sell and a, and a source of revenue was a way to enable the distributed energy market to continue to, to grow. Um, and it is exciting to see the adoption of such solutions that shows me that solar can be a dominant power source in the, in the future grid. Mm. Of, of course, and undoubtedly software and um, intelligent management of these resources absolutely pivotal um, to drive both their adoption, um, but also to help integrate large-scale renewables across the grid. Um, But of course, innovation within the space is not just about technology. It's also about your business model. And I know there's been lots of different approaches in the market. Um, And I'd be quite interested to hear from you, Soya. I mean, what business model do you see as likely going to be the prevalent business model in order to deploy those different technologies and provide holistic solutions? Um, And what role does digitalization and intelligent management of those resources play within that? So from a business model perspective, we see many different models and these are early days. So people are experimenting in many ways so far. Um, in our case with, um, we don't, we're not a solar developer, but we will work with solar developers. And we, what we do is we do the storage systems or the combined um, solar plus storage um, as the case may be. And we do everything from spot sales. Basically we're selling the system and then managing um, from that point on to where we make the investment completely and then we monetize, as I mentioned earlier, and get a share of that revenue as, as a way to get a return on the investment. So different models where we might manage uh, in, in both cases. And sometimes we find third parties who want to invest in those assets as well. So it's it's a combination. But I think the point you made about the technology plus know-how plus the business model, I think that coming together is critically important. So if I look at what we do, we have software that optimizes the battery in the case of the battery system. And we also have software that intelligently participates in the available services at the retail level or at the wholesale level. And I think that's important that the utilities work with the system operators to make sure that there's a transparency and visibility across both the centralized as well as the distributed resources. And when you get to that point, it's an incredibly powerful 
way of making sure that the investments are both available and can be justified. And so the, and this software is a, it's a, a machine learning uh, AI type of uh, system. So we're able to predict and we'll get better and better over time in terms of everything from the weather patterns to what we see as load patterns, and then be able to make sure that we're discharging in a thoughtful manner. And um, we today, you know, we participate, as I mentioned, in, in many different markets, both with the more um, either behind the meter or, as I mentioned, the smaller front of the meter systems. And at the same time, also with the EV charging units. So today we are already participating in utility services for demand response in California with our juice box, which is a residential, currently a residential product as we take it into more uh, commercial and public charging infrastructure, um, we're able to use software and the cloud, as Lior was mentioning, to be able to participate in utility uh, services or um, in, um, in system uh, resiliency um, opportunities. Mm, absolutely, and you both talked um, about software solutions there. And I mean, this is critical infrastructure in the end, and right now across the world, we're seeing heightened concerns about um, cybersecurity threats, um, intrusions, and ultimately we will be relying more and more on the connected DERs to provide the critical resilience and security of supply to our grids. So how concerned are you around cybersecurity um, and the ability of you know, foreign actors, for, for example, to be able to penetrate um, those systems and as such attack the reliability of our electricity grids? What's your concerns around that? You know, that's a very uh, important question, Julian. I was meeting with a very senior executive at a utility, and we were talking about the availability of information. And he was pointing out that they have to think about exactly this problem of especially state actors that could potentially have um, the resources and the ability to disrupt the systems and so being, you know, it's, he said it's no longer about some one person sitting in a, in a room someplace trying to hack into our systems. This is a, we have to be concerned about more methodical uh, and resourced um, actors. And so um, we do have to be concerned about um, building the right kind of systems. And that's one thing that NL has in incredible expertise in is because we are a utility ourselves in so many countries. And so we've built a whole, we have a very robust cyber uh, security capability and, and organization. And so we go through those, um, including SOC 2 compliance. And, and so we, we take those very seriously. And at the same time, we also have to make sure that when it comes to complying with regulations like GDPR or the recent California regulation about protecting uh, privacy, we also have to uh, balance um, the um, confidentiality requirements that we have to follow. So uh, we take all that very seriously. And fortunately, as I said, we have the ability because of our background. I fully agree. Cyber is becoming a, a bigger and bigger uh, issue of discussion. Uh, I think that around the world, there are already been a few examples of, of, uh, of what people can do in energy networks, uh, in electricity networks uh, uh, with cyber. Companies need to, to, to act responsibly and uh, use uh, multiple types of uh, cyber policies and cyber protection uh, measures in order to protect infrastructure because 
if you're using equipment that is exposed or, or you're using um, data centers that are exposed or software solutions which are not uh, protected enough, then eventually a, a, a hack will, will come. But I also think that there is a growing need for more certification around cyber, more industry standards around cyber, more openness around uh, cyber. Yeah, I don't think that, uh, um, that any company can be hack-proof. I don't think that uh, someone should say that they are hack-proof. But I do think that there needs to be more transparency in what companies actually do in terms of cyber uh, protection. We, for example, have um, this policy and process where we open our systems to to ethical hackers, we pay ethical hackers to try and hack our systems. We learn a lot from these um, from these attempts, and we actually publish some of the results. So transparency is one thing. The other thing is that the industry needs standards and standardization and industry standards and regulations. Same like we have re- regulations and standards for safety, we need to have regulations and standards for cyber po- cyber protection. Only then it will be really possible to differentiate between companies that say and companies that do. Even companies that do are not uh, are not uh, uh, bulletproof, but uh, um, at least when you have a standard means of measuring, you have the ability to drive the the, the cyber policy forward and not just stay in one place. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and um, maybe to kind of wrap things up because this was, this was a really crucial topic. But I think not just around cybersecurity, but as as Surya mentioned, you know, around the whole distributed energy resource environment, it's all about building the right kind of system. And I think I'd be interested to just understand because you both have got a lot of experience from across different regions and in the early stages, really, of the uptake of distributed energy resources. Because let's face it, they're here to stay, and the uptake will only grow. Um, as as the as we decarbonize further and the energy transition continues, so um, to finish things off, I'd be interested to understand from both of you what lessons can be drawn from regions where distributed energy resource penetration is already significant, um, and maybe starting with you, Leo, um, and then we'll we'll pass over to Surya. Sure. So, so obviously, uh, uh, distributed energy resources are more proliferated uh, uh, now in uh, Europe. You can see countries like Germany where there are days where you have 100% of the um, electricity in the grid coming from distributed energy resources. Uh, I think that other than um, excellent uh, consumer understanding, both on the commercial side, utility side, residential side, where people really understand the value of distributed energy resources, which is something that is uh, wonderful to see, uh, there is also a lot of work on the network management side of, uh, in, in, of things, where the network, uh, where the people that are responsible for the network management think ahead and introduce standards both in communication and in cyber, by the way, and also in, in, uh, in uh, uh, balancing solutions and economic solutions and regulation around uh, uh, how to build 
for distributed energy resources, how to build and charge for flexibility. Now, really thinking ahead of the game. So you already see discussions on what will happen when we have 60% or 70% uh, or what will happen when we will need double the amount of uh, flexibility in the grid, even though we are far from that point today. And that forethought that we see from governments, from utility companies, from network operators, from, from, from the entire industry is what's driving the, this level of uh, acceptance. And I'm happy to see that also here in uh, North America and in, and in uh, USA. I think that everybody sees what future is coming and, 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 and are preparing to it, maybe in a little bit different pace, but still. Uh, we see it coming. And that's great. You know, yes. picking up where Lior uh, was, was talking about North America, I, you know, one thing just to, as, as a backdrop, it's amazing that in the last even less than two years, the concept of the energy procurement manager or the sustainability lead or the procurement head being responsible for energy, that has now shifted to where, if you see some of the largest tech companies have announced about their commitment to renewables and decrease of carbon footprint at the CEO level. And so we're seeing CEOs of some of the largest companies in the world, some of the most valuable companies in the world coming out and talking about carbon neutrality and sustainability targets. And that's driving across so many different um, sectors and so many different um, uh, company size companies so with that backdrop, I do see that the um, increase of uh, distributed energy resources, sustainable resources, so solar um, plus battery storage or um, different types of renewables along with storage becoming more acceptable. And even in states and regions which have traditionally been more supportive of fossil fuel generation, these large players are making a difference and they're speaking up with their money and they're driving the right kind of behavior at the state and um, system level. And I do think that that in some states, it's much more, it's much easier from a, both from a regulatory and um, um, Friction, more frictionless participation, as well as from a financial perspective. And in some states, it's more difficult. And so as long as we start to see this kind of progress continue, I do expect to see us leverage, and again, as Leo was saying, all, all sorts of distributed energy resources, both from a management and visibility perspective, as well as from a the ability to contribute into the grid or into resiliency or into ancillary services as and when the need arises. Absolutely, I think that's a great point to kind of conclude um, our little panel discussion here, because I think as we found distributed energy resources are really here to stay, and they're really reshaping the way that customers use and generate their electricity, but also provide a huge amount of value to the grid, both across resiliency and flexibility. So with that, thank you both so much for joining the conversation today. And also thanks to our audience for joining us for the Zero Week conversation brought to you by IHS Market. Thank you, Julian. Thanks for inviting me. Thank yeah. you very much, Julian. Thank you, guys. Thanks again for tuning in to another Sierra Week conversation presented by IHS Market. 
For the complete video series and previous episodes, visit us online at sarahweek.com.